0: This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. My name is Zach Lutz. I'm the senior pastor here. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you all, and we're going to be uh, continuing our sermon series in Ephesians. Uh, just just one note— I, I've, I've noticed, uh, and if you've been with us for a while, you know, through the holidays, we kind of go through a dip, and when we come back out, the room gets full. This is just a small encouragement for you all that show up earlier. Sit closer to the front. Uh, make, don't make those poor souls that are running a little bit late because their kids were hard to get dressed, uh, sit all, you know, do the walk of shame all the way. No, it's not a walk of shame. You're, you're welcome here, even if you've got to sit all the way up front. But do uh, be considered as you arrive early to find parking, maybe outside of the parking lot. Um, and, and come in a little bit early uh, and, and find a seat up front for the sake of those that show up a little later. Uh, and, and in case you're wondering, we do have more chairs coming, actually. We've ordered more. They just take a while, as everything does on an island. And as we're doing uh, construction as well, we're trying to uh, grow uh, with the people that God has given us. So thank you for being here. Bear with us in our mess in construction uh, and as we, as we grow together. So we're going to be reading from Ephesians. Three, continuing in our sermon series in Ephesians, in Ephesians 3 today. And I had a, a question that I wanted to start us off with, which is, what would you say rules your life? What rules your life? And I think most of us, when we think about who or what rules our lives, we would say, well, well, we do. I'm, I'm in charge of my own life. Uh, we can do anything if we put our minds to it. Nothing is out of reach. There's kind of an American exceptionalism that embodies a certain idea that maybe the rest of the world doesn't quite share that we think we're the rulers of our own lives. But it's not just that. Then we get a little bit more specific. We think that performance rules our lives. Like, if I can perform the way that I need to, uh, then I'll finally be able to accomplish what I want. If I graduate with honors, if I get those internships, if I start these businesses, if I make those promotions, make these investments, I roll with these players, right? I can make the moves I need to to create the life that I want. Some of us, though, if we reflect on what's controlling our lives, might say an addiction is controlling my life, whether substance or electronic. Some of us, an illness might be run- ruling our lives, whether it's an illness that we ourselves have or one a loved one that we have, that it's all-consuming and seems to pop up at the worst times and interrupt our lives. But I think there's one thing in our cultural moment that tops the list of what rules our lives. That's anxiety. Plenty of studies and news reports are coming out right now that general and specific anxieties are at all-time highs. We are an anxious people, ruled by anxiety. But I wonder if you've heard this verse. It comes from Matthew 6. This is what Jesus says. He says, Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I think we all hear that, any of us that have struggled with some um, anxiety or worry, and we go, Okay, but how am I supposed to do it? Does the Bible really give me what I need to not be ruled by this fear and anxiety? Is it really better than what the world has to offer? Is it better than my addictions at numbing out these things in the world that stress me out? Is it better than my work ethic actually accomplishing what I set out to do? Does the Bible really allow us to lay down our anxieties? Now, we're going to be reading from Ephesians today, and it's Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. Uh, And the Ephesians probably didn't conceive of anxiety the same way that we do today, but they did have fears in their lives. They had different things that ruled them. We'll explore some of them in a moment. And nothing being new under the sun, uh, they were still just as addicted to their own performance or other outside addictions that are sinful. And Paul prays for this Ephesian church that they may not be ruled by anything else but God himself. They cannot be ruled by fear. They cannot be ruled by their performance. They cannot be ruled by their addictions. Only Jesus alone. But in order to break these other rulers that they have in their lives, they're going to need something better. They're going to need a better power, and they're going to need a better love. And these are going to be our two points today from Ephesians 3, that in order to break the hold of rule of fear over our lives, we're going to need a better power and a better love. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word which comes from Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So Paul didn't want the Ephesians to be ruled by anything other than God himself. Now, I just want to do a brief uh, review of what Paul has written to the Ephesians so far in the first two and a half chapters. He's spoken about God's great sovereignty and God's great love, God's great power and love already. And he's spoken about Jesus breaking down, dividing walls of hostility between Jew and Gentile. But you could hear all these great things that Paul was describing, and if you were in his audience, you couldn't help but fear a little bit. In many ways, in the first two chapters, Paul has laid the foundation for social upheaval in the ancient Near East. Think about being a Jewish Christian in the first century, a Jewish Christian, right? Your family might have been okay with you entertaining these theological oddities of following Jesus. After all, they knew other Jews who were following Jesus. They knew it wasn't quite in the mainstream, but they're like, you know what, I don't know, it's kind of a side thing. I'm not really sure what's going on. It's fine. But your Jewish family was not going to stand for you associating with Gentiles. There was going to be a break with the family. That is something that is not done. Maybe you can entertain theological oddities, but you can't associate with them And for both Gentile and Jewish believers, there was severe persecution for this theological oddity that existed. We read in Acts that when Paul first came to Ephesus, he was almost arrested for inciting a riot by preaching. Like him preaching made people so upset that they dragged him into like a 20,000 person stadium to accuse him. There was fear fear of being ostracized from your family, fear of threats of persecution. What Paul was saying was dangerous. And so he prays that they might be ruled by something else than their fear. And this starts in verse 14. He says, for this reason, I bow my knee for you. Paul in this letter says that in order to have a life that is not ruled by fear, you're going to need a better power and a better love. So first, a better power. A few years ago, I experienced my first panic attack, anxiety attack. And in In those moments, I wanted a power to overcome at all costs, right? I was a Christian at that time. I wanted immediate, tangible answers to my prayers, a power from the outside that would bring me to the other way. I wanted relief from my paralyzing anxiety. I wanted to be able to drive my car without hyperventilating. I wanted to be able to sleep for more than just a couple of hours at a time. I wanted a temporary power that would superhumanly carry me through to allow me to be me again. That's what I really wanted. Maybe some of you have experienced something similar. Maybe with anxiety attacks or something else. Maybe you've asked for power to superhumanly handle situations that were beyond you. If your child has ever been seriously hospitalized, if you've been faced with terminal diagnosis, if market and business downturns create downsizing and you're about to lose your job and maybe your house and your family's about to move, we pray in desperation for what? Power. We recognize we need more power than what I have. The reason that we want that power is because we look at the looming circumstances before us, whatever they may be, and we say, I don't want these things to change me. I want to continue being me. And whatever I'm facing right here might change me forever. One of the most common descriptions of crippling anxiety, like if you're kind of asking people to identify if they're anxious, uh, one of the things that you'll hear them say a lot and that I said myself was, is this going to be forever? Am I going to have this feeling forever? What about illnesses with my child? Will my child be handicapped forever? Can my cancer be fought or will it take me? Will I lose the respect of my wife and kids if I lose my job and our home and our lifestyle has to change We want power in those moments that will see us safely to the other side, unchanged. Jesus sees us safely through to the other side, but he doesn't leave us unchanged. See, Paul prays for the Ephesians that they might have a better power, a power that's going to change them, leave them fundamentally changed. And this is the first description he gives of this power in verse 16. It says that you might be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit. Now, right here, I want to stop. And just acknowledge that our minds go to a lot of different places real quick when we talk about power coming through the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we hear that and we think of something superhuman. So even people who claim to be Christians can say things like this. If you have the Holy Spirit, you're going to do superhuman things. If you're really Christian, then the Holy Spirit will allow you to handle snakes. That might be an extreme example that most of us uh, maybe have experienced but probably have just heard about on the news. But that same logic actually touches closer to home. If you're really Christian, then the loss of this job is only going to open up a door for a better, more prosperous one. If you're really Christian, then the Holy Spirit will remove your depression and anxiety. If you're really Christian, then you wouldn't struggle with that sin anymore. This isn't the kind of power that Paul is praying for the Ephesians. But it is unbelievably powerful. Powerful. Paul is talking about the power of the Spirit, and he adds at the end of verse 16, "...in your inner being." And commentators will say that this inner being isn't some kind of mystical experience where we're meditating, but it's, it's to signify for Paul that it's, in some sense, with the grain of your person, which means it's not like magical or superhuman, right? There's something fundamentally different happened that's taking you from this desire to want to be superhuman to actually making you truly human. Many of us believe that being truly human is problematic, but being human is how God created us. And in our sin, we've, we've failed to be truly human. And in our anxieties, we've allowed ourselves to be ruled, instead of by God, by fear. The burden for us is discerning what sinful humanity actually is and what authentic humanity actually looks like. And God-given authentic human humanity is going to be only found in Jesus. No, I'm going to bring it down here for a second. Okay, so sometimes we believe and we're praying in those moments that we would have the strength to not cry, right? I want to be brought through, uh, and I, I don't want to be afraid anymore. God, give me the strength to be me, to be stoic and above it all. Being superhuman is not crying at the deathbed of a loved one. But Jesus shows us what it's like to be truly human, and at the tomb of his friend, weeps. Being superhuman is never experiencing fear in the face of persecution. Being truly human is praying like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified with sweat like great drops of blood. Being superhuman is wanting to have all the right answers for your skeptical and belittling coworkers and friends, but being truly human is answering like Jesus, you have said so while turning the other cheek to get punched. Being truly human is suffering and crying to God, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. The Spirit always makes the most use of the times of crisis in our lives. To break us down from this idea of self-sufficiency, to be truly dependently human on our ruler. His power isn't within you to give you some sort of temporary power that suddenly removes all fear from you. But his power means that he'll bring you to the other side of your fear, transformed for his purposes. And we see this here when Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would be strengthened with power so that, verse 17, Christ might dwell in their hearts. This power is so that Christ might dwell. And this word dwell is very important because a dwelling power is a transformative power. And one commentator kind of put it like this, I'm modifying for my own uses, um, when you rent an Airbnb, you aren't dwelling there. You're staying there temporarily. And you would say that you exercise some of your own power over the Airbnb, right? You turn on the faucets and the ACs um, and, and, and whatever else. You might even pick up and take out the garbage, you know? Uh, but it's not your dwelling. You don't change the furniture. But When you own a home, and when a home is your dwelling, you exercise a particular kind of power over that dwelling, a transformative power. If you don't Like the sink, or the sink doesn't work, you rip it out. You put something else in its place. If you don't like the color of the walls, you repaint. You reorganize for your own purposes. Christ dwelling within you is a power that is reorganizing you through the midst of your anxieties for his own purposes. You won't make it through unscathed, you'll make it through transformed. That's the power. That he gives you. The power of Jesus isn't just temporarily staying in your heart, he's dwelling there. Jesus is knocking down the walls of sin, making you truly human, so that what true humans do is repent when they recognize their own sin and turn towards God and say, Not me, but God who works through me. True humanity is able to recognize when there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. To have a life that isn't ruled by anxiety, we need a different kind of power in our lives. We have a power that is transforming us through the midst of our anxieties and pains to make us even more authentically human. So to live a life not ruled by fear, we need a better power, but we also need a better love. Paul in verse 18 prays for the Ephesians that they might have the strength to comprehend God's love. And this comprehend word is fascinating. Most literally translated, it means to grasp onto right? To grasp onto. Paul is praying that they might have the strength to grasp onto Jesus' love. And I've kind of pictured it like this, like Jesus' love is kind of passing through, and we're trying to grasp onto it, right? And if we can just hold onto it, then we'll have this better love that'll see us through our deepest fears. But when we have a life ruled by fear, we're always worried about what happens if I can't hold on long enough, Like, I know that Jesus has the power to see me through even the hardest times and my deepest depressions, but what happens if I let go in the darkest valleys? Because more often than not, in those moments in the darkest valleys, I'm holding on with such desperation that my spiritual muscles are cramping. In that moment, I'm still ruled by fear, not by love, fear of my own inadequate faith. Paul is not asking them to grasp onto a better love so that they don't fall. He's asking them to grasp onto a love that is greater than they could have possibly imagined. And so it's kind of like this. Uh, Right now, my daughter, Alora, who's who's, who's not here this morning, right, but she's 10 months old, okay, grasps on to my wife, Margarita, like her nose and her, her hair and her shirt, right, just like wherever she can grab. And like in her little mind, she thinks that she's she's grabbing on as tight as she can, and that she's holding herself there. Like when I come up to try to get her, and she's like, "No, no, no, Mama." But if Margarita and my wife were to set her down and walk away, or expect her to hold on to her by her own strength, there is no way she could do it. What is Alora grasping onto? She's grasping onto a love that surpasses her understanding. The breadth and length, the height and depth. She could not even comprehend how much my wife loves her. And yet again, in her little mind, she's holding on with everything she's got. Paul prays that we might have the strength to grasp, like a baby grasped onto her mother, to the love that surpasses understanding. The breadth and length, the height and depth of the love of Christ for us. It isn't our love for Christ that holds us there. Although we grasp with all of our might, it's Christ's love for us that holds us there. And in order to not be ruled by that fear, we need to comprehend. We need to grasp and know that love. So how do we learn to grasp tighter? I mean, can we like strengthen those spiritual muscles so that we can hold on a little bit tighter? And that's why we use the word comprehend. It's not a bad translation to, to have the word comprehend there. It has this piece of knowledge. How does Alora come to know my wife's love for her. She grows as she matures, poco a poco, in knowledge and comprehension of Margarita's love. And so we come to greater knowledge and greater comprehension of God's love through relationship with God himself we can get a little bit more specific on how we know things. There's a bunch of recent studies on how knowledge is habitual, and you can look to authors such as Jonathan Haidt, David Brooks, and James K.A. Smith, and if you don't know any of those names, don't worry, neither do I. My wife gave them to me. So I'm gonna explain it how it was explained to me. How do you know baseball, really know baseball? And full disclosure, I do not know baseball, so this analogy is gonna break down real hard. There's some aspects of habit in baseball. You train the drills, you throw the ball, you practice receiving grounds and pop flies, you go to the batting cages. But you would say that it is uh, insufficient for someone to simply train the drills if they never play the game, right? They never made it to the game. Now, if you go to a baseball game with somebody who really knows baseball at a place like Wrigley Field, as I have, and they're telling you everything about it, the lore, the famous stadiums, the fields, the curses, the histories, the teams, the cities, there's a liturgy to baseball, the opening exercises, the smell of the stadium, the organ music being played, the hot dog races. There's the pulse of the audience in the bottom of the ninth and a tie game with bases loaded. You might say in church speak what we need is habitual liturgies to know God's love. But habitual liturgies by themselves are nothing if it is not oriented towards the game which is worship. Liturgies are habitual, and there's the habit of studying and reading your Bible and praying, and many of you do that all the time, and yet if you're just doing that on your own, there's plenty of people throughout history who have read their Bibles and know it very well, who pray a bunch and who do not know Jesus. They practiced all the habits, and they never made it to the game. The habits alone are insufficient to more deeply grasp the love of God if you never go to the game of worship. Look at verse 18. You grasp on that you might have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And if you'll remember back to like the last three weeks, we have, uh, Kyle and myself, have shown that Paul has gone through great lengths to create these new words that are together with in community with We're supposed to be doing these things together. Worshiping together is of gospel importance. There's something about God's love that we can only grasp right here in this room. There's something that we do right here that we cannot replicate anywhere else. Invited by God together. We sing to God together, we pray together, we confess our sins together, we listen to God's word together, we partake of the body together. Last week, Kyle talked about the importance of the church, and he talked about these things. Why do we go to church? That we might grasp God's love better. When we do life together, we have the grand opportunity of seeing the manifold grace of God at work in other believers, and we get them to comment on our lives as well. We get a front row seat to the remodeling of the hearts of others. We get to have wiser Christians speak into the depths of our lives and share how when they were in not the exact same situations of anxiety, but quite similar, God saw them through. Totally transformed for his purposes. Together with all the saints, we encourage one another to see the great love of Christ that is there. And you know how like the Bible will talk about with such a great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12... When we walk through this habitual liturgy together, we're participating in something that's much larger than just Trinity Church in this room. There are hundreds of thousands of churches, churches worshiping around the world at this time, but we're also connecting ourselves to church history in a particular way, something larger than us. We're participating in a church of believers who were persecuted, who lost children, who had children taken from them, whose lives were uprooted by war and famine, so that whatever we face, we can look back at faithful believers throughout history and go, even there God saw them through. Even there he will not let us go. Even there where their faith failed them and they got the theology wrong, Jesus still persevered. Hebrews 12, I just want to read these couple of verses here, but I want you to notice the plural pronouns, like the collective personal, personal pronouns. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We grasp the love. We come to know the love of God that surpasses understanding by going to church, by doing life together, By hearing the same story proclaimed week after week for the last 2,000 years, this is how much Christ loves us. So in order to have a life ruled not by anxiety, we need a better power and we need a better love. But Paul's actually going to summarize all this and to say, to have a life not ruled by anxiety, you need a doxological Life. Now, doxology can be a big word, and I just used it in like another form, doxological, but you'll understand what it means if you just read verses 20 and 21. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. A life that is focused on the power and the love of Christ is a life that cannot be ruled By fear and anxiety. This isn't to say that we won't experience fear and anxiety. Of course we will. We're human. But in those moments, we have an indwelling power that promises that no matter what we are facing, Christ is able to do far more than we would ever ask or think. That his dwelling power through the Holy Spirit is using even this for his purposes because he promises that it will be so. And when we're not sure how we're going to cling to those promises through the darkest of valleys, we can remember that it is not our grasp that holds us there. If fear is ruling your life, or anything else is ruling your life other than Christ Jesus, hear this gospel call that there is a better power and a better love, a God who is able to do far more abundantly than you would ever ask or imagine and leave the rule of those other fears and other rulers behind, and let us all come to a doxological life in everything that we do, praising Him, who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or imagine. Amen? Now, the better power and the better love come together at this table. This table is a declaration by Jesus Christ Himself where He commanded us, as often as we gather together, to partake of the same body and the same blood, and have the same message declared over us again and again and again, my body sufficient for you, my blood sufficient for you. Not the power of your own performance, not the power of your own grip and understanding of His love, His body and His blood for you. As such... This table is intended for Christians, for those that have united themselves to Christ's uh, death and resurrection and baptism. And so if that isn't true for you, um, we'd ask you not to partake of this meal, but we don't want you to leave. Please make use of the prayer in your bulletin. Um, and if you would like to become part of this covenant community, to unite yourself to this power and this love that is greater than you could possibly imagine, please talk to me or Kyle or any of our staff. We would love to, t- to answer any questions that you have about that. This is what Jesus said the night that he instituted this meal. The night when Jesus was betrayed, when his disciples rejected him, he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it. And he turned and he gave it to his disciples, as I ministering his name, now give it to you. And he said, This is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, poured out for the remission of the sins of many. Take and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. Now in a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we can come down the center aisle, we can actually go to these two serving stations, because we've got kind of a mess over there. You're actually going to be coming to this table, uh, which is pretty exciting. However, uh, note, the gluten-free option has moved from that side over there. Uh, So if you require gluten-free, go that way and then notify your server because there's also gluten full over there too, and then he'll hand it out. Um, So we'll come to these two tables. I'll be serving here. I'll have someone else serving over there. Uh, And then you'll kind of go around um, and and throw away your cups in the little waste baskets that helps the church that follows us. Uh, So if you would, please pray with me. Indwelling Holy Spirit, By working faith in us, we'd ask that you would change these natural elements to their supernatural purpose, to remind us of who our ruler really is. We ask that you might make us truly human. You might unite us together into one body, that we might know your love and be to your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.